You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Let's return to Daniel. We're almost through the book of Daniel. And today we come to Daniel chapter 11, which is one of the longest and most complex of the prophetic visions of the future uh, in the book of Daniel. In fact, it's so long, if you have your Bible, you look at it and you go, oh boy, Ted's going to be reading for 20 minutes. Uh, uh, we, we don't even have time to read the entire uh, chapter. Uh, I do commend it to you. Uh, it's a very difficult chapter because a lot of it deals with history. And unless you have some of the historical background, it, it may not make a lot of sense to you on a, on a surface read. But we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit. What you need to know as you're looking at Daniel chapter 11 is that the chapter actually ends at uh, chapter 12, verse 3. And um, it breaks down into three sections, three sections that dealing with specific time periods. The first section from 11... Chapter 11, verse 2 to verse 20. That deals primarily with the rise and fall of Alexander the Great and then, and then the subsequent division of his kingdom, focusing on primarily on two, the continuing conflict between two of those kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom, which we might be better referred to as the Syrian kingdom and the Egyptian kingdom, uh, with, with Israel right in the middle, and, and the, the conflict between those two empires and how that was going to be impacting uh, Israel. That's, that, that is chapter, verse 2 to verse 20, uh, which covers about 400 years from Daniel's time up into the second century B.C., the second section, uh, the focus narrows in uh, to one person. Uh, the, the cha- the, he's called here in chapter 11 a contemptible person, uh, and we've seen him before. Uh, this is Antiochus Epiphanes IV, uh, who ruled the Seleucid kingdom from 175 B.C. to 164 B.C., uh, he's not a huge name on the world history stage, but he is a big name, huge name in Israel's history, uh, and therefore our redemptive history. Um, uh, he, known primarily for the evil he perpetrated, the horrible evil, uh, the, uh, called the abomination of desolation, right? Uh, taking over, profaning the temple, uh, sacrificing pig flesh on the altar, putting up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies, uh, and killing uh, countless uh, Jews in Israel. Uh, he is primarily significant for us, because he's, he's the biblical prototype for a future ruler to come. The one the Bible calls uh, the man of lawlessness, or the beast, or the antichrist. And the third section of chapter 11, which we're going to read today, is the chapter that deals with that figure, uh, the Antichrist. This is Daniel 11:36 to 
to 12.3. Remember, this is a divine messenger, an angelic messenger, speaking to Daniel. Um, And uh, so so you know know who's talking here. And we're going to pick up at uh, 11, verse 36. Stay seated uh, for the reading. This is God's word. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites." He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction." And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is God's holy and inspired and inerrant and infallible word to us today, even though it might be confusing. Um, Let's pray for his help in understanding it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, please do illuminate uh, our understanding, make my communication clear that we together might uh, understand and apply your word to Daniel here, uh, to us and to our lives in the 21st century for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been a tough week. Um, a week in which we were once again confronted with unspeakable, uh, irrational evil uh, with that, conf- that uh, preys on the weakest of us, with selfish fear that 
exposed the weakest, weakest of us. Uh, and so in the wake of those revelations uh, in Texas, it is, uh, I believe, good to return uh, to the book of Daniel, uh, where we were just reminded last Sunday uh, that much of this deep, irrational, awful evil that we experience here on our planet is the outworking of a massive invisible to us, right, cosmic uh, war between the, fo- the forces of God and the, the satanic uh, forces uh, arrayed against God. Satan and, and the other created, uh, powerful God-created beings that, that stand in opposition uh, to, to the Lord, to the Lord uh, are dedicated, they are dedicated to wiping out uh, God's image in our world. And they do that in various ways, right? They do it by blending uh, God-ordained gender distinctives. They do it by undermining the institution of marriage, one of the greatest pictures we have uh, in the, our world today of the relationship of Jesus to his people. Uh, and they do it by simply and terribly crushing the image where they can, like in 19 children and two teachers uh, in Uvalde, Texas. So after a week of sadness and frustration and rage and fear for your own children, uh, I have to ask, and and you have probably been asking, is there any hope? Uh, Will this kind of thing ever end? And I'm here to tell you that the book of Daniel answers both of those questions with a resounding yes. Uh, There is hope, uh, and this will end. We can't get into all the detail here. Of course, I didn't even read most of it. Um, But what I want to do this morning is is pull out from this vision three three principles which uh, I believe will be helpful to you and encouraging to you uh, as we live today in and face uh, the evil of the world that we uh, live in. So first principle, when God speaks, he delivers truth, not a best guess. When God speaks, he delivers truth, not a best guess. I don't know about you, but I am becoming increasingly weary uh, of uh, political talking heads uh, telling me uh, what's going to happen I- inside the beltway, uh, of polls predicting the outcomes of elections, of market analysts, especially lately, market analysts prognosticating uh, what the financial markets are going to do. I'm weary because what I'm hearing, I, I realize, are best guesses, right? And the reality also is that those best guesses are frequently wrong. And there's no responsibility, there's no accountability, there's no cost to their being wrong. They keep talking. And I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, you know, manage a life here. I'm trying to make wise decisions like you are. And it's hard to make wise life decisions uh, on best guesses that are often wrong. That's not very helpful. So is there an alternative? Absolutely, right? 
Last week we saw this angelic messenger that speaks here in chapter 11. We, he was introduced, he came onto the scene uh, to Daniel, and, and he tells Daniel at the end of chapter 10, we saw this last week in verse 21, uh, the angelic messenger says to Daniel, I'm going to tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. I'm going to tell you what's inscribed in the book of truth. And and then in chapter 11, verse 2, uh, a verse we didn't read, but I'm going to read it to you now, uh, the same angelic messenger says, and now I will show you the truth. And that's really the introduction to everything else that's in chapter 11. And now I will show you the truth. You see, what we're getting here in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel is not a best guess. It's not Daniel's best guess. It's not the angelic messenger's best guess. It's the truth. It is what is going to happen. That's helpful. That I can use, right? Now, we don't have time to get into the incredible detail here. You know, a lot of what this angelic messenger discloses in chapter 11 has already been disclosed, at least in part, to Daniel in some of the earlier visions, right? Uh, Alexander the Great, the the four empires that, that break off after Alexander's death, the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms, uh, all, all of that uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, but now we get we get it in much more detail. Some of the gaps are filled uh, in chapter eleven, and what you see in the run, in in this run up to the Antichrist. So in verses two, eleven two to verses to eleven verse thirty five, what you see is a prediction of history uh, in in great detail. And what is more exceptional about the the detailed nature of the the prediction is the the reality that historians will tell you, and not just biblical historians, but historians of the period, uh, non-biblical historians, is that that this prophecy was fulfilled in all of its detail. That everything that was predicted here actually happened in history. And it, it really is remarkable. If you're interested, I mean, I, any good commentary on Daniel will will flesh that out for you. If you want a, a good summary, look at the ESV Study Bible notes. Does a pretty good job in in, in, a, in a summary fashion of showing how everything that the messenger tells Daniel was actually fulfilled in history. Um, and <clears throat> in fact, it's so accurate. It has been proven so accurate that many scholars uh, of the liberal persuasion argue that, and you won't find these commentaries in our library, but they will say in those commentaries, uh, that obviously this is a prophecy written after the fact. That what we have here is not a book written by Daniel or a chapter written by Daniel. It's by some other anonymous author who's pretending to be Daniel. He's looking back at past events and writing it uh, prophecy uh, so that it looks like uh, everything was fulfilled. Well, uh, a lot of problems with that argument. Uh, it, it, there's overwhelming evidence of, of uh, uh, the, the authorship of this book being around the time of Daniel. Uh, so, and, and plus, that, those conclusions are really driven by their own 
biases, right, which are typically an anti-supernatural bias, right? No one can predict the future, not even God, if he exists, and, and certainly no one can predict the future with that degree of accuracy. Well, of course, we say, well, God can. Why? Because the, he, God isn't predicting history here. He's decreed it, right? He's managing it. He's, he's bringing what he has decreed to pass. Of course, it's going to come true. So here's the takeaway for you. And, and, and it's a simple one, but it's, it's one we, we, we must remember. God's word is utterly reliable. As you face whatever you're facing uh, today, tomorrow, uh, you can know that this book that you hold in your hand, God's Word, is utterly uh, reliable. It proves itself over and over again. If what God disclosed about future events has come true in every respect, then you can trust God for what is still yet future for us. Right? That. What he says is going to happen, will happen. It happens, right? So the fulfillment of prophecy that we see here in chapter 11, leading up to uh, this, this, this prophecy about the Antichrist, is a great confidence builder in the Bible. Trust, trust your Bibles. Okay. So that's the first principle. When God speaks, he delivers truth, not best guesses. Second principle, human power in whatever form that human power takes, whether it's political power, military power, economic power, technological power, human power is full of sound and fury. Uh, I'll I'll borrow that from Shakespeare. Uh, But it doesn't produce, human power does not produce permanent change and improvement. Um, the farmer poet Wendell Berry said it this way. He said, where ceaseless effort seems to be required, yet fails and spirit tires with flesh, because failure and weariness are sure in all that mortal wishing has inspired. Failure and weariness are sure in all that mortal wishing has inspired. And boy, the longer I live, the more I see the truth of that. How is that communicated to us in chapter 11? Well, uh, again, I'm going to, ref- I hope you have, if you have your Bibles, you have them open to chapter 11. Uh, even though we didn't read these verses, I'm going to read them to you. Now, uh, it is the combined effect of these verses that get us to this truth that human power does not produce permanent change. Uh, verse 4, his kingdom shall be broken and divided. Verse 6, she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up. Verse 9, he shall return to his own land. Verse 12, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Verse 14, the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fail. Verse 17, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. That's a prophecy about Cleopatra. Uh, He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. 
Verse 18, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Verse 19, uh, he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Verse 20, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Do you hear what chapter 11 is driving home like a sledgehammer here? As soon as human power and influence gets exercised to accomplish something, what gets done tends to become undone. It's very difficult, if not impossible, to score net gains from power, human power, alone over the long haul. Right? And of course we see that right in the political machinations uh, of our own country. Uh, the policies and accomplishments trumpeted by one presidential administration get quickly unwound by the next. Right? Um, the right to an abortion uh, may get denied here soon at the federal level. Praise God. But... Uh, we can almost be as certain that that same right to abortion will pop up now constitutionally protected at the state level. What gets done gets undone. And while we like to think that the human race is improving, getting stronger, getting better, getting more intelligent and wise, you all know that the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And according to chapter 11, we still await the, the Antichrist, right? Which will be accompanied by evil and, and, and bloodshed at an unprecedented scale. Aren't you glad you got up this morning? So some of you are you're sitting there thinking, well, so what's he saying? I mean, you know, are we, am, I just, am I supposed to just throw up my hands? Right? Does it, it should, I guess I shouldn't care. Right? It's all, uh, you know, why are you, you're telling me, Ted, not to get involved because it's a, it's a losing game. You're telling me to curl up in despair, right? You're, you're essentially signaling me to be apathetic. No, not at all. Right? This is not a call. Daniel. The book, whole book of Daniel, including this chapter, is not a call to fatalism or passivity or apathy. In fact, it's just the opposite. Think about who wrote this book. You know, Daniel was not a professional religious guy, right? He, he, was, not a, he was not a prophet by trade. He had a day job, right? Daniel was an advisor in two different empires, right? The Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. He worked in politics. Not only did he work in politics, he worked, he worked for empires that, that were enemies uh, of his home country, Israel. Uh, and he worked for empires that he had actually prophesied against, that he had prophesied would eventually fall and fail and be succeeded by other uh, empires. That didn't cause him to be apathetic, but he rolled up his sleeves all the more and got involved. Remember the orders that he was operating under. He and all the exiles uh, in, in Babylon. Orders from God received through Jeremiah by a letter. Right, Jeremiah 29, when Jeremiah says to the exiles, including Daniel, um, among other things, seek the welfare of the city. 
Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Friends, the Christian faith, right? Our faith in Jesus Christ that calls us to love God above all and calls us to love our neighbors above ourselves is a faith that seeks the welfare of the world. It's a faith that seeks the the repairing of the world and the flourishing of human beings who are made in the image of God. So Christians are, like Daniel, called to, to engagement. We should be active in all spheres of human life, national life, education, business, politics, law, arts, military, law enforcement, the trades, all of them. So if this principle then isn't a call to uh, fatalism or apathy, what is it? It is a call to active engagement with proper perspective and priorities. There's the key. You guys, many of you have seen, seen it today. Some, some Christians who used to consider their political affiliations in the context of their faith have now started to consider their faith affiliations in the context of their politics. Right? In other words, human power and politics have become the primary grid by which they interpret and engage the world rather than the primary grid of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus, Christian, is your way of life, right? It's your way to understand the world. It's your way to engage the world. It tells you how to engage the world, right? Like speaking the truth in love. Like considering the interests of others more significant than your own. Like loving and praying for your enemies. Like speaking less and listening more like denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. You see, your faith in Jesus is not just one tool in your toolbox uh, to use to bring about a way of life that isn't shaped by Jesus and his kingdom priorities. Whether that way of life is, is supported by conservative principles or liberal principles or libertarian principles. So we engage politically while remembering that whenever we engage with human power, whether it's political power, military power, economic power, our our best solutions are only going to be partial and temporary and imperfect. Right? Failure and weariness are sure in all that mortal wishing has inspired. So we don't get too confident or comfortable with a political victory, or too despairing with a political loss. So much of what human institutions and power end up doing is like what an assistant U.S. attorney I talked to once, how how he described his job. Uh, Christian man, uh, in fact, uh, father of uh, one of our supported missionaries, Grace uh, Grace Zubrod in uh, in the Middle East, 
he's an assistant U.S. attorney at the time. He was prosecuting organized crime. Uh, he came to uh, one of our worship services. I was talking to him afterwards and a- asking him about his job. And he said, you know, Ted, what my job is like is, uh, he says, probably the best analogy is mowing the lawn. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you know, mowing the lawn's a good thing. It's a good necessary thing. You have to mow your lawn, but the problem is it always grows back. And he says, you know, as, I, as I'm fighting organized crime, I do my best as a Christian to fight organized crime. But man, it's just like mowing the lawn. I, as, as, as fast as I put them away, the, 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 you know, the, the other ones pop up in their place. Um, you know, it's... The, that's what I'm talking about, right? It's the, the imperfect, partial nature of what we can accomplish in ourselves, in our own power. But as Christians, as Gordy prayed today, you know, we engage the world uh, like everybody else, but also at a different level, at a whole other level of engagement, right? The way you ultimately engage as a Christian in obedience to Jesus is to be his witnesses in the world. Now that that may you know that's a, the word witness has become kind of hackneyed in the Christian world. You guys know a lot of you are watching the Amber Heard Johnny Depp debacle, but what, what, one of the things that's been interesting about that trial, right, is that what we're hearing and watching is a parade of witnesses, right? And what do witnesses do? Well, they're supposed to testify to the truth. Right? They testify what they know. Uh, and that's how we are fundamentally as Christians called to engage, uh, engage our world. We are called as to testify by you are, by your words, your, your life, your priorities, your decisions, your actions. Uh, you are called to testify about the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the grace and the forgiveness and the kindness and the wisdom of Jesus. Right. In doing that, you know what? You're pointing to the only good life that there really is. It's the good life embodied. In, in the body uh, of Jesus Christ. It's only, it's, it's only in Christ, right, where, where people are going to find the true good life, where human flourishing will really happen, will really occur uh, at a permanent level because people are changed, they're reborn. Right? That, that the powerful metaphor that Jesus used about the necessity to be born again, right? That we, we need to become new creatures. Uh, and that's what the gospel does as we put our faith in Jesus and, and come to know his forgiveness and his love and his victory uh, over death. That is what ultimately affects true and lasting change for the welfare of our world, the welfare of our country, welfare of our city. So that's the second one, right? Human power, whatever form it takes, uh, is, is full of sound and fury, uh, and, and, and it can do a lot, but it, 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 is, it, it can't produce permanent change and improvement. It, it's always partial and imperfect and temporary. So third and final principle. Um, evil and trouble are in our future. But 
all of it is in God's hands, God's control. It will end decisively on God's timetable, and we will be delivered powerfully. Right? So evil and trouble are in your future, but all of it's in God's control. It will end decisively on God's timetable and will be delivered powerfully. Um, we read the section about the, the Antichrist verses, uh, in it, verses 36 to 45. We, we read that the Antichrist is going to possess great political and military power, right? And that's going to be backed up somehow, uh, united to, supported by a, a religion. There's going to be this this evil wedding of, of, of political and military power with, with false religion. Same thing John communicates in the book of Revelation, right? With the beast and the false prophet. The beast representing political power and the false prophet representing false religion. Uh, that's what the Antichrist is going to use. And that great political He's going to amass this political and military power. He's going to back it up with this this false religious uh, uh, support. And it's going to produce great evil, great hardship. Uh, It says in verse 38, he's going to honor the God of fortresses. That's a much debated phrase. But I think it's pretty, it seems to me pretty clear. It seems to me what that's, I take that to mean that the Antichrist is going to be committed to war as a way to change the world. Committed to war as, as the agenda to get things done. And as you read on after verse 38, you see that he's going to be dedicate a lot of resources to the worship of the God of fortresses. And those wars are going to involve the deaths of countless thousands of people. And then, uh, if it can't get any worse, in verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. Unparalleled trouble and evil is on its, you know, we're in it, uh, and it's going to culminate in, in this climactic evil uh, uh, of the Antichrist. Right now we're in the stage that G- Jesus called in Matthew 24 the beginning of the birth of birth pains, right? What we're experiencing now are Jesus' contractions. You know, don't, don't, don't mistake it for the real thing. Um, it's going to get worse. Uh, but, the, you know, the good thing about God, you just got to love Jesus and the way he picked his the way he communicated, right? To call those birth, to call the suffering we're going through now birth pains uh, is, is to say that they're going to end in joy, right? That, that, the, that these pains will inevitably be over because they're inevitably, inevitably going to produce something wonderful and good and a cause for great joy, right? And that's really what we see sketched out uh, in in uh, in chapter uh, in this in these uh, verses about the Antichrist, right? Because even though we got this terrible news about this, the Antichrist, the very then we're immediately told, look, but he operates; he's got guardrails that he can't jump. 
that there are limits on, on what he can do. In the section of dealing with Antiochus Epiphanes in verses 21 through 35, and remember, he's the prototype of the Antichrist, uh, there is a repetition in the description of Antiochus Epiphanes of this notion of appointed time. You see it twice, verse 29 and verse 35, that, that, that Antiochus Epiphany, Epiphanes was on appointed time. That, that, that he was operating, in other words, on God's timetable. That all his dates and times were appointed by God. He started when God appointed him to start. He ended when God appointed him uh, to end. If that was true, and it was, of Antiochus Epiphanes, it's also going to be true of the Antichrist uh, that he points to. right? And, and there you see it in verse 36 of verse uh, chapter 11. The Antichrist will prosper only until the indignation is accomplished. You see, limits. I know it's hard, isn't it, when we go through suffering, um, when you personally are going through difficulty and suffering and trial. Uh, it seems, if, if I can generalize from my own experience, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to end. You know, suffering and evil and trouble has a way of sort of closing in your perspective and, and all you see is the trouble and, um, and, you, and it's easy to get discouraged because you don't see how it ever is going to end. Uh, but this is why this is so wonderful because even as God is saying there's going to be this evil and trouble in your future, it, it, it has guardrails. It's going to end. And that's good news, right? That means what's our job? It means to hang on, to persevere in faith, to wait on the Lord, to trust in His time. And notice, too, how decisively and easily and pathetically uh, the career of Antichrist ends. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Verse 45, right? Uh, he only gets half, you know, half of that verse, right? That verse 45 ends with a short sentence, which is really the obituary of the Antichrist. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. What a statement. And the stark brevity of that statement is, is meant to communicate something. It's meant to communicate the ease with which God dispatches the Antichrist. Friends, evil, suffering, trouble, trial, tribulation, of whatever form, is no match for God and neither is Antichrist. In the end, at his appointed time, he dies and he dies alone. And then what happens? We're delivered, right? Uh, we're delivered. Uh, in verse, this is the power, powerful deliverance part of the principle, right? In chapter 12, verse 1, those whose names are found written in the book will be delivered. I want you to hear that phrase. I just want to stop there for a minute, right? That, the, it, that, that phrase, written in the book, what that means, if you're a Christian, is that your name is known and precious to God. 
that you are known and precious to God. That he is, because you're known and precious to God, he's written your name in his book. I want every Christian to hear that, but I especially want you young people to hear it. I've been reading lately about some of the, uh, and discussing with parents about some of what our young people are, are going through growing up in this age. And one of the and one of the great challenges is 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 you know the twenty four seven indoctrination of social media, right? And some of you young people are on there, and and you're being told in one way or another by trolls or ex friends or bullies that you don't matter that you aren't liked, you aren't loved, that in fact you aren't even lovable. I want you to know that that's a lie right out of the pit of hell. Listen to me, young people. If you're a Christian young person, you are fully known and fully loved by God just the way He made you. Don't listen to the, to the lies of the devil. Don't listen to the lies of the world. You are fully known and fully loved. And how are we delivered? By resurrection. This is one of the exceptional statements about resurrection in the Old Testament. There's not a lot about the resurrection in the Old Testament, especially directly. Uh, there's more there by implication. But this is one of the, the clearest direct statements about Christian resurrection uh, in the Old Testament. Um, look at verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And of course, that's not going to happen to you because of any good thing you've done, right? That's going to happen to you because of the mercy and the love of God in Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ that you have embraced, Christian, by faith. The reality is that this Jesus that God sent, the Son, the eternal Son, uh, endured for you what still awaits in the future for Antichrist. Jesus, the Son of God, came for you and he came to his end with none to help him. Not even his Father. Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you will be accepted. Jesus was left alone so you will be gathered home in the arms of God. Apart from what Jesus did, friends, you will not be delivered. And that's a sober word to those of you here who are not Christians and I want you to hear it. You know, resurrection affects all of us. Some will rise to abundant and everlasting life. Some will rise to shame and everlasting contempt. And the difference is where you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ, who lived for your righteousness and died for your sins, is holding out eternal life for you. Uh, but if you reject that, deliverance is gone. And the only thing left is shame uh, and contempt. Don't let that happen. 
and Christians as we trust in Jesus alone uh, and what he accomplished in his life and his death and his resurrection for us, we know we are saved and we will be saved on that day. When all evil will be overcome, every tear will be dried, and death will be no more. That's actually the bottom line of Daniel 11, and that's very good news. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for a difficult chapter. So much here, uh, Lord, some of which we touched on a lot, which we didn't. Um, But I pray, Lord, that you would use the truths in this great vision to strengthen us, to comfort us, to call us to resist in faith uh, the evil of the world, to, to love those created in the image of God, to be fearless testifiers of the truth of Jesus, to wade in uh, to certain death in order to save some. Something that law enforcement was apparently unwilling to do in Texas. Father, give us the courage to do it as we witness and testify to a world. Uh, may, we, may we put our lives on the line uh, for those you came to save. Um, we follow you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have the courage to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses and follow you, knowing that you, in the end, are the victor. For that, we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church Escondido reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.